Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. On the podcast today, I have a guy who has weaved his way all over the world with martial arts. He is a former Royal Marines Commander Reservist and ended up as one of the best striking and MMA coaches at Hanzo Grace's Academy in New York. Please enjoy a Grumpy Surfer conversation with Jamie Crowder. Jamie Crowder, welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. How you doing, brother? Cheers, mate. Very good. Uh, lovely to be here, you know, finally get to chat with you and uh, talk about some things that hopefully are a bit interesting. <laughs> Where are you at the moment? What are you up to? Um, at the moment, I'm in Connecticut. I'm at this uh, casino called the Mohegan Sun. Um, I have my main guy fighting, his um, name and Gracie. We're the uh, co-main event at the Bellator fights. We're fighting uh, John Fitch, so uh, been be, be exciting that tomorrow night we fight. We just weighed in about uh, two hours ago, and uh, so I'm just waiting in the hotel now just to get some food in in a little bit and then just chill out till the fight. Yeah, how's it looking? Is it looking good? Yeah, I'm very happy. Um, we've been working together for a long time, and unquestionably, this is the best I've ever seen him. Like he gets better all the time, to be honest, and, and progressively, and like most or all fighters should really but he he's definitely made steps in this last i would say 12 months that have been very very impressive and this was i think this is one of the best camps we've ever had so uh, and it has to be because our opponent is super super talented so um i think we're going to be a good match for him and uh, i'm excited to see if we can implement what we've been planning you know yeah, John Finch is quite a, quite a strong character as well, isn't he? And he's a, he's an ex-champion, isn't he, as well? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, he's a, his record is absolutely phenomenal. It's one of the best in MMA history. Um, and he's fought all of the best people. Um, he was a, I think he was a World Series of Fighting World Champion. And uh, he fought for the Bellator title last year. And uh, he didn't lose, but drew a controversial decision with uh, Rory McDonald. So uh, he didn't he didn't get a title, but uh, he's certainly in contention wherever he goes because he's just very very talented. How was uh, how was Naaman's weight cut? Because uh, I know a lot of fighters struggle with uh, weight cuts sometimes. I mean, you see some of the UFC guys and well, a lot of the pros sometimes they have to cut quite a bit of weight, don't they? And they're absolutely hanging out. Yeah, that's accurate. Um, people do struggle. Um, as much as I can appreciate the science of things. It's not a, it, like everything, it's not a perfect science by any means. Um, and sometimes things can definitely go wrong or um, even on just on, literally on the day. But normally it's, for me, I've always experienced it as being um, preparation orientated. So like if, you, if you've maintained your weight correctly, if you're, if you're really disciplined and you eat the way you're supposed to, once you've had an, a series of fights, you start to appreciate and understand your body more. And then if you're around the same people as well, like if you're if you're being trained and, and coached by the same people, I think that consistency can be uh, very relevant in things like weight cutting because your coaches know you and you become very uh, tuned in to how your body is. Um, and that seems to be the case with me and Naaman and my other athletes as well. Um, I would say this was without question, the best weight cut we've ever done. But we've never really struggled to like to the point where I've seen other people. But I usually feel, and I can't speak 
with expertise on other people's athletes. But when I have seen those things happen where people are struggling, it's usually down to the things I just said. Poor preparation. They weren't at the pr- correct weight to start the process of dehydration in the first place, or they've just, you know, they've poorly, um, like, trained. And then when they get there, they're not really sure. They're not with a, a group of people that they're familiar with, and things just don't go well. But usually I feel like it's preparation that is key to that kind of thing. And then your own personal history with your own previous fights should always be dialed in to help you get to the to the place you need to be. And with me, I'm fortunate to work with extremely professional people. So it's not that difficult for me. I have a process that I use and it's worked uh, pretty much every time. Professionally for me, I've never missed weight. So, How do you find... Um people actually doing weight cuts because people do them in lots of different ways and and you're around that um you're you're around that environment all the time i mean how do you find people cutting cutting weights best do you find that it's you know an ongoing diet thing where it's like the stuff they're eating or do they just stay natural weight and then they drop like 30 pounds in the last couple of weeks like how how do you see people's weight cutting going the best way what what's the best way you've seen um, well, I can speak for myself, the people I've worked with, um, as a general rule, and I try to never have my athlete higher than the weight category above them before we begin a weight cut. So if you were, I don't know, if you were fighting at 155, you, you couldn't begin the weight cut any higher than 170. Or if you wanted to be 170, you couldn't be any higher than, say, 185. It's just a general rule I've used and it's been very useful. So I have cut more weight with people, but it's usually somewhat detrimental. And for me, I always try to keep in mind that the whole premise of cutting weight is to to either give you an advantage or to neutralize any advantage that your opponent might have by being physically bigger than you. So when you start delving into big, big, big weight cuts, you start to reduce the significance of what you're doing because potentially you're dealing dealing with a detrimental effect on your system. So your um, endurance can be affected. Um, if your weight cut doesn't go well, it can definitely affect you psychologically. Um, so I usually feel like the best weight cuts that I've seen are the people who are maintaining their weight throughout the fight camp. Um, and people who train all the time, people like Naaman, people like, uh, I mean, the, one of the best, easiest examples is somebody like George St. Pierre, who he, he doesn't really, I mean, he had fight camps, but realistically, it was just more training. It was just more intense training. He always, always trained. So he maintained his, his athletic abilities and his skills and developed them, in fact. And then when it came time to, to fight, he didn't have to, you know, cut down from 220 pounds because he hasn't been training. Like that stuff is, in my opinion, it's not the ideal way to conduct yourself as a professional athlete. You don't want to be cutting ridiculous amounts of weight because you've been in, you know, not disciplined in maintaining a healthy lifestyle outside of your fights. So I think it's better to 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 diet, or not even diet, but you know, look after yourself and just make sure you don't go go too heavy uh, when you're not fighting, so that when you do get to a fight, you can easily get down to a weight that's manageable and then cut weight from there. I'm nowhere near a professional fighter, never will be. But you know, I've I've cut weights to do a few jiu-jitsu competitions before, and 
I'm, I've never been in that environment. Like, you know, I've got a few mates that are boxers and stuff like that, and they've, they've cut weight and they've done really bizarre things like, you know, intermittent fasting and all that sort of thing. And when I tried yeah. to do it, I dropped like two kilos, I think it was. Oh, my God, the next day I was absolutely drained. I did like two fights, and that was me. I was like, I felt absolutely written off. And, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of a... um your body and your biomechanics you kind of learn it over time don't you it's not just something that you can automatically do straight away because uh, by yeah physically and and biologically you just can't do that can you yeah no it's not a i mean to to be perfectly honest i wish that they did away with it you know i wish we weighed in on the day <laughs> and you that was it right i mean in a way that's in my view it's healthier because uh, you're not cutting weight at, at the, any any form of dehydration is bad for you. So, and also, you know, you could be the, the top scientist, but as far as I can read or know or understand, um, people people can't really tell what happens after you rehydrate. You don't know if it's going to affect you. Some people suggest that you're more susceptible to being knocked out or concussed, um, and depending on the severity of the previous day's dehydration, but none of it's good for you, you know, and it's not good for your organs. And if you do it a lot, you know, if you fight a lot, then there could be long-term health um, problems as well. So there's there's no good thing about dehydrating yourself. So yeah, if you don't do it very much and you don't have experience with it, it's always going to be very difficult to deal with. And even the people who do it a lot, you still see them miss weight. Still, you still see them struggle. So it's a it's a kind of a science, but it's it's not. It's not a. It's not well measured, you know. Not everyone hasn't got the same way to do it, and everybody doesn't react the same to it. Yeah, I won't be doing that again. I like my food too much, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's you know to be honest, it's usually better to fight as close to your natural weight as possible. I think. Um, obviously, there's advantages to being bigger, but as I say, they they become less and less obvious the more you deplete yourself. So, I think over the course of the last few years, maybe five, ten years. MMA fighters have got smarter about it because I do know it back in the day, like 2003, four, they, they were cutting monstrous amounts of weight. And just because you could make the weight didn't mean it was a good idea to fight at that weight. And I think through trial and error and mishaps, a lot of coaches and uh, thinking has moved towards doing that less now and being more, you know, um, being more sensible about what you can cut. You can read loads of books and you can look into loads of YouTube videos. You can be a scientist yourself and, and, and almost kind of say that, you know, you're, you're, you're ahead in the field. But like you said, there's nothing really written down and everybody's body is very different. Yeah, for sure. It's like, again, like, I, I don't know one way to do it. I know some ways to do it. Uh, I've used different methods to different people because it's what makes them comfortable but it becomes a personal relationship then between you and your athlete and then you decide what works best for them some people like to run around and and jog around in their suit and then some people like to go in the sauna other people like to do it through a, a bath or, or a combination of different methods and it's just unfortunately whatever you do it's going to be pretty unpleasant you know yeah. I would like you to do is just get a little bit of background on you for everybody to, to, to understand where you're coming from because at the moment you're currently um, the Muay Thai and MMA coach at Henzo Grace, is that correct? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm running the MMA program there. There's um, 
a number of amateur and professional guys fighting there. So I've uh, been fortunate enough to be uh, able to look after those people. And Henzo's uh, took me under his wing a long, long time ago and uh, allowed me a place to train. So um, that's what I've been doing for. I've been at Henzo's for about 17 or 18 years. Oh, really? And then, in, yeah, I've been there since 2003, 2002. So I've been training there for a while and I was always coaching fighters, but the, it grew the academy grew considerably over the years and then I have a great friend and fellow coach um, and one of my original Thai boxing teachers, Joseph Sampiri, um, who's a wonderfully talented uh, Thai boxer and great coach, one of my uh, one of my go-to guys all the time. Um, he helped me, you know, a lot with understanding and setting up my own um, way of, of teaching the MMA and, and structuring some classes and things. So that's what I've been doing there for probably about four years as far as the the, the um, classes or the, the group is concerned. And it, it was primarily based off of um, Naaman because after, after I started coaching Naaman, um, we, we had people in, but it was inconsistent. So we needed more people. So one of the ways to do that is to make them, you know what I mean? So we would just build people up who wanted to compete. And then eventually um, we had a nice little stable of, pro guys and amateurs and also it's Henzo Gracie's academy so there's always people coming in like phenomenally gifted talented athletes from all over the world just popping in to train or to, to say hello so that was always cool too that's always happened while I've been there so you get to learn and uh, kind of have great conversations with people who are like-minded so that was really helpful. I get what you're saying with the uh, with the people coming from all over the world. It must be quite like a humbling experience sometimes because I remember, I mean, the first time we sort of had any form of conversation was before the Nate Diaz and uh, Jorge Masvidal fight last year. You sorted me out with a few training sessions there and um, thank you very much for that, by the way. That was awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I'm was, glad you had a good time. Yeah, it was quality, mate. And, uh, we rocked up there and you had, you know, a load of MMA fighters, UFC fighters, you know, even Buchecha was there and, you know, a few of the other yeah. top-level jiu-jitsu guys. And, I, I mean, I don't, it's easy for you because you kind of work there, but I, I guess it could be quite a intimidating place sometimes when you've got all these high-level guys coming through the door. But also quite humbling as well because you probably get to train with a lot of them as, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think but you, you're spot on with both of those um, statements. I mean, it is, in the, I think the Hensel Grace Academy itself is a very intimidating place just by the very nature of of, uh, of where you are. But um, then at the, exactly like jujitsu and, and good martial arts, um, I think they're very humble. And it's also, it's a really nice measure and reminder of of, uh, of what's out there and what's available. And, and for me, you know, I've had pretty much the most significant, some of the most significant experiences of my life in the academy, like conversations that have changed my point of view or um, physical um, training that's just, you know, constantly reiterating and helping me create better habits or uh, different ways of doing things. It's it's just been there. It's a great place to be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I know I'm very fortunate to be there. I know that um, it, I've been there a long time, so I also feel uh, com very comfortable there. And I don't, I don't ever want to create an environment where people do feel intimidated. So I've always been of the mindset and I've also been brought up in the martial arts and um, by people like Henzo and uh, 
John Danaher and Gene Dawn and uh, many other people uh, who constantly, for me, reflect that uh, humble side of the martial arts and making sure that you do your best to to include everybody because it's without everybody, it's impossible. You know, you can't you can't be an elitist and think that you're going to develop the people and this and yourself in the way that you need to. You need a as many I mean maybe not absolutely everybody but you need as many people on the mat as you can get from all walks of life so that you can uh, I think you can fulfill yourself properly then because it's not just about achievement it's about sharing what you're doing you know I think I want to talk to you a lot more about this a little bit later on but um, talk to me about you know where you grew up and and how you got into martial arts to, to start with let's, let's go back to the beginning and um, yeah sure um, so I was probably, I was, I was around five years old. I, I was raised by my grandparents. So, um, you know, my mom was wonderful. She knew at that point in their life, it was the best place for me to be. So I was, I was allowed by my mom to go and live with them. Um, still had contact with my mom, but uh, I grew up there with my grandparents. And one of my uncles, he was probably about 15 years older than me. He was still at home. So he was running around doing like karate and doing all this like push-ups in the house and just being you know a 20 year old lad just training and stuff and that was obviously like that was around the year of bruce lee and things like that so i was caught up in that with him and, and as a little boy i always wanted to be like my uncle so by the time i was like 10 or 11 i was looking to do something i was doing i wanted to do boxing i wanted to do karate like he did and by the time i was 13 i was I was training in uh, Goju Karate, which was a sp small school by me in, in Morton, which is a, a small village just outside um, Liverpool. And um, so I ended up training from when I was 13 and then I never stopped after that. And I had a fantastic instructor. His name was um, Keith Pace and he taught karate, but he was also, you know, a street guy. He used to grow up in rough areas and he used to be a bouncer. So like, his version of karate was very much uh, mixed in with real kind of experiences that he had. So um, I was very fortunate again to be there. So to be at a young age and be brought into the martial arts in a way, which I think was extremely beneficial for me. It gave me uh, discipline and, and a respect for hard work, that uh, physical hard work and hardship. It was, it was tough classes. Um, so it just framed the whole experience for me really well. I don't think I would be in this position at all if it wasn't for him and for his way of teaching. Because it, if you can go, if you go in martial arts early and, it, and you have a bad experience, it can totally throw off your entire future because you don't you think that that's what the martial arts is. And so, I've I've seen unfortunately I've seen that a lot. But I I realise how blessed I was to have that teacher. And then uh, he was also very enthusiastic in going around and trying different things. So by the time I was seventeen, eighteen, I was boxing. And he ended up boxing with a gentleman called Stevie Goodwin. He was a coach in uh, towards Chester area. And um, he used to coach a lot of professional boxers. He was very good. Um, he, I believe he had uh, involvement with Robin Reed, who was a European, or maybe even a world champion um, at the time. So I got really great instruction from him and a few other people in the area. So I was boxing and then I, I moved on to kickboxing. Um, as a, and a friend of mine called Carl Cabride, he was a local uh, British and European champion, fought for world titles, um, been all over the world fighting. I'm still very good friends with Carl, 
um, he would get, he took me under his wing as well, and we would we started uh, really training quite seriously. Uh, and then I fought with Carl. I had a couple of boxing fights and a, and then a couple of kickboxing fights. And at that time, just around that time, a friend of mine was in the reserve Royal Marines, and um, I really admired this guy because he was just like the fittest person I'd ever met, and uh, super determined, and he had a very big influence on me and so um, I, I started taking him to karate with me and doing kickboxing and stuff he was a bit older than me probably about 10 years older but we got on really well and um, he was like you should you should uh, think about you know trying for the reserve marines and so I knew how difficult that was and, and the kind of reputation that the Royal Marines had so that was a little intimidating I was only about probably about 19 or 20 at the time so I did some fizz nights with them and I really enjoyed it what year was this? But this was a, I would say this was, ooh, let's see, 1990, probably like 1992, 93. Oh, really? Yeah. And then um, I eventually got a bit, I was always a bit of a wanderer, you know, and so like I got a bit, um, I don't know how to put it, but I got a bit, uh, probably just a bit fed up with the situation I was in. So there wasn't really much work. It was uh, kind of a, a hard time to get work and stuff. I was a carpenter. I was I, I'd saved my time as a carpenter, and um, once I finished my apprenticeship, the company just let you go. So, you know, I'd work, but it wasn't consistent. And um, I, I can't say where it comes from, but I always I've always had a sense of like I want to know what's out there. <laughs> so um, nobody else really, I would say, in my family is like that, or my friends weren't really big on traveling or doing stuff, but I was. So I was always a bit of an individual, I think, because nobody I knew did karate except for my uncle and none of my friends. So I always did what I wanted. I still maintain my friendships, but I just did what I wanted. And um, in the end, I was like, I've got to get out of here. So I uh, I sold my, I had a car, that's all I had. So I sold my car, bought a ticket and um, applied for a, a visa to Australia. Um, and they, they gave me a visa. So I just buggered off for like a year. I went to Australia. Um, that was amazing. That was that was good as well. That was a significant moment in my life. It, I think it matured me emotionally, um, totally unexpectedly, while I was out there. Um, and that brought me a lot closer with my grandparents, actually, because by the time I come back, I had a different appreciation for things. Um, did you just do a bit of traveling around there, or did you go out there purposely to like you know train a bit of karate, or did you just want to go and see a bit of the world? Yeah, you know, I'd mostly just wanted to get away and see what was out there. I just, I was super interested in, uh, in just not being where I was to see, see, uh, to see if my ideas about the world were correct or not. And uh, I certainly got my uh, answer while I was away. I, I was there in Australia for about ten or eleven months, oh, nice. and then I spent, yeah, I was there for almost a year, and uh, I travelled all over, worked, did, did all kinds of crazy jobs. Um, I did a little bit of training there. I did some Thai boxing in in, in, in um, Australia, which was really good. And then um, and then I came back through Thailand, and that's when I really became a lot more enamoured with Thai boxing. Um, so I went to see a few fights, and I didn't train there. I was just travelling, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And I was like, I knew about Thai boxing, but I had never, you know, been to a place where it was just so revered. 
And did you go to fear the, that, did you go to fear the back street? Um, like, like, uh, what, like arenas? Because I remember when I went there, it was, um, it was just surrounded with, with bars. And then you just had like these, these rings just knocked up in the middle of like some, some wooden shack somewhere. And then, yeah, it was kind of a crazy place. Uh, it was one of the places I really wanted to go and look at as well. And I spent quite a bit of time just watching the fights and stuff there. Yeah, it was like that for me. It was uh, because I didn't really know a lot about the the uh, the sport or the martial art, uh, and I didn't know anybody there. I just kind of stumbled upon things. But you, for me, you're right. Like I would, you'd you'd be walking through some forest, and like on some island somewhere in Thailand, and then like you'd come across some little village hut, and the next thing you know, in the back of the the huts, there's like a boxing ring and I was like what the hell's going on it was kind of cool the blokes you... are absolutely nails as well aren't they oh my god I was like don't like people like nine stone eight stone little tiny fellas and they would absolutely murder you in a fight you know <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah that was really good because of it even though I had res- a lot of respect for Muay Thai I didn't really have an appreciation like I did until I went in and I saw it for real and I was like Wow, um, so when I came back, I uh, I wanted to look further into that. You know, that was one of the things that gave me uh, an interest in in looking for it. Um, so yeah, I, I basically my visa ran out in Australia, and I was running out of money. So after I was in Thailand, I came back to uh, back to the UK, and I was happy to see everyone, but I wasn't especially happy to be back. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing, which was carpentry and stuff. I didn't have anything against it, but I just, it wasn't a passion. And uh, so I, I, my friend who was in the Royal Marines, he was in the reserves, he was, he encouraged me to to try it for that. So being as, being a bit of a non-committed bugger that I am, I was like, well, you know, I definitely would like to try, but I don't know if I want to go in for four years or whatever. And so he was like, you should just come with me to the reserves. So um, that was another phenomenally important thing for me. So I went and I, uh, I applied and they accepted me. In uh, March 97, I went in. I was, that was my troop. And uh, again, I, I've never felt like I was athletically, I don't think I'm not gifted in anything, but I don't think I'm particularly gifted athletically. I'm, uh, I'm not faster than most people. I'm not strong. I'm just but I was determined and I also feel like if I had anything it was probably physical robust like properties in my body I think because like I would never get too badly injured or I would never get too sick so I was around a lot of really talented people and fit people in the marines but or in a, sorry as a recruit and uh, a lot of those people fell off you know they like especially as a volunteer it was easy to just not show up anymore so yeah, it was just, that was I the same for me, really, because I, I was, I would say I'm just the average person. And uh, when when I joined when I was 18, I was, I played a bit of rugby. I was a bit yeah. of a sprinter. And uh, I didn't actually realise that the Marines was all about endurance. So uh, when, I, <laughs> when, I, when I turned up and we were doing like three milers, four milers, six milers, eight milers, I was like, how far are we going? And, uh, yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit of a culture shock for me, if I'm perfectly honest. But like you say, I, I was never the most physically gifted person in, in the world, but I was always 
the person that was like, do you know what, I'm not going to let it break me and I'm just going to carry on regardless of how hard it is. Just just keep just keep going. And that mentality yeah. sticks with you. And, that's, and I think that's a very transferable thing, I think. Yeah, 100%. Like, that's one of the things that was so valuable. Like, I think the, the, the big thing for me is I'd already, for me personally, I'd already trained a lot and, and had some fights and things. So physically... Uh, even though the training was very very difficult for me um i could i felt like i could handle it um to the to the extent that the people around me were handling it as well so we had a, you know your oppo and you've got your people around you so you're like all right i can do this it's not, i'm not on my own and also i'd had fights and things so I, was, I had a bit of tenacity about me and determination and then i'd been away and you know traveled and i felt like i wasn't a kid i was like you know i was a man and i, and I knew how to to deal with stress and stuff but the professionalism and the the mythology about what was going on around me was that definitely was a huge thing for me especially in the way that i've since then since i've been teaching and been around athletes and the way my life developed i mean i didn't know i was going to be doing what i'm doing but the marines 100 percent shaped that for me um, my attitude towards training and stuff definitely and the people i met were just even now, you know, I have such admiration for those guys that the lads who, who took me through training, and I'm still friends with uh, a couple of my. Well, they were corporals now; they're sergeants or sergeant majors, but and some of them have retired. But um, I've got the highest respect for those lads. They just they shaped me without me fully knowing it either. There's years and years after stuff would be happening, and I would say things or do things, and sometimes you catch yourself, and I'm like. Oh yeah, that's 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 the hundred percent coming from the Marines. You know, it was, it's. I'm very grateful for my experience. After you 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 got your green lid, you know, did you do much with it afterwards? Did you manage to go away or anything? No, um, I didn't because uh, as as was like my, I was in a kind of a dilemma. I was like, what shall I do? Shall I? Because at that point, my my thoughts were to go potentially to go full time or. Um, even try for SB or something um, because I was like 24 then I think and um, I was still young enough I suppose but um, I also was like I kind of want to go away again and a friend of mine was in, uh, in in New York and basically was inviting me out to come in there work with their kids on this summer camp he was working in. Actually, it wasn't New York. It was here where I am now. It was in Connecticut, which is the neighboring state. Um, so I decided, you know what? I, if it doesn't work out for me over there, I can come back and uh, maybe explore this further. And uh, I ended up going to, to Connecticut and working with these kids in, in summer camp. And I would do rock climb with them, take them on walks. It was really good. It was great. And that lasted for about six months. And I came with the intention of coming to New York, to the city, and seeing if I could live and work there. It was difficult because it was difficult to get any kind of visa or um, things like that. But I managed to uh, to get an extension on my visa from the place I was working. And then in the end, well, long story short, I started uh, fighting out there. I started boxing and kickboxing again. I ended up winning this world in 2003. And uh, I got another visa and another visa. And then I won a Thai boxing, national Thai boxing champion at lightweight in 2005, I think it was. And so I was able to, you know, uh, 
get more work and then prove that I was a valuable uh, asset. So, and then I was able to stay permanently. So you, what, um, what, what gyms were you trying at of there then? Initially, I was at, uh, there's a gentleman from uh, Manchester called Phil Nurse. He's a very talented Thai boxer. Um, been doing it for God knows how long. And he used to train with a uh, master scan. And um, he was British and European champion. And he had a, a, a friend of his, uh, Bobby Beckles, another British and European Thai boxing champion. And Bobby was living out here. And he met me in a, in a boxing gym called Gleason's, uh, a famous boxing gym in Brooklyn. And uh, I was there training, uh, doing some amateur fights there. And I met this lad, Bobby, and he introduced me to Phil. And Phil was one of the... Um, you know, pioneers really of Muay Thai in New York. Um, oops, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> my phone fell over. Uh, yeah, so he was one of the pioneers of, of Muay Thai, Phil was. And so I ended up connecting with him. And so he, he was probably my first proper Muay Thai teacher. And um, he was just, and is a super, super supremely gifted athlete. And uh, he taught me and allowed me to teach for him in the end and he had a, a student called uh, who I mentioned before called Joseph Sampiri he's another extremely talented Thai boxer and a, a very very good teacher very insightful and very innov innovative um, so we we kind of trained together me and Joseph and we fought and uh, fought for Phil for I was there probably about three or four years but Joe was there a lot longer so that's how I initially started um, Muay Thai in New York was with Phil and with Joseph Sampiri. I thought you said your coach was Master Ken, and all I had imagined in my head was the guy in the red gear that does all them stupid videos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that guy. He's brilliant. Um, so Master Ken. Main, yeah, you're one of the main coaches at Henzo's, and Master Ken was your coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Johnny Bullshit artist. I'm like, hey. Yeah, we could cop anything, right? Yeah, exactly. That's brilliant. How did you end up at Henzo's then? Um, well, the gentleman mentioned before, uh, Bobby Beckles, the lad I, I met at Gleason's when I was boxing sparring. Um, he was really, he's still a good friend of mine, but he was really, really helpful for me. He was like, when we were boxing together and, and started to get to know each other, um, he asked me if I was looking for any work, any, any, any kind of job or anything, because I was new to New York. And so what I was doing wasn't enough. So I said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do anything. And he goes, I work in a nightclub uh, doing security. And so I was like, all right, cool. So I ended up working in a nightclub for like, I think three or four years. Um, and it was, that. I mean, that would be a, probably a good few hours of stupid stories there. Because uh, I'm not a very big person. I'm not, I'm not exactly an intimidating human being. So like, Give us one of your best ones then. Uh, well, so there's just lots of stuff like um, it's a different culture in a, in a way in a, in New York. And like when I first started there, uh, it was a really good club. It was really cool. But like, you know, sometimes you'd have trouble. And like I didn't really understand the difference in, in culture. So if there was any sign of any kind of trouble, you know, I'd just fight people like and, I, and of course I'm small. So everyone would pick on me because all the other bouncers were massive. Um, and so I was fighting all the time and the manager pulled me in one day and was like, listen, and he was cool. He, he was cool because he, he'd worked with other people from 
Europe and stuff. So he was like, listen, I, I have to have the talk with you. And I was like, what's this talk? And I was all nervous. I thought he was going to sack me. And he was like, I understand that, you know, you come from a different place, but these people aren't going to fight you. You've got to stop beating everyone up or <laughs> fighting with everyone. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And then I started, you know, over time, I started realizing this isn't true of everybody in, in New York, of course. There's plenty of tough people out there who'll certainly hand your ass to you. But for the most part, uh, people just say stuff and they mouth off and they shout and they, they act tough, but they don't do anything. And uh, I, was, I wasn't used to that. You know, where I'm from, it's like, if you say something, it's on. <laughs> so don't say anything. So um, anyway, that was kind of a funny thing for me because I was like, oh. And so after I had that conversation with me, I was uh, much more successful in uh, staying out of altercations. <laughs> you, come, you come a little bit more articulate the way that you put yourself across. Yeah, and like I realised that I wasn't in much danger most of the time because people went, just they just went made, made that way. You know, they weren't like there to do that somewhere but most of the time it wasn't that way i bet you thought you were uh, in the film roadhouse weren't you with uh, with patrick swayze <laughs> yeah i thought i thought you'd be bigger <laughs> yeah exactly. yeah yeah that's good yeah that was a, that was actually a time when i started uh, jiu-jitsu around about 2002 because okay. um yeah i was in there one day and this lad was just this like one of the customers was just like fighting and like he choked someone unconscious did something else to someone else and I was like oh that's impressive so I, so, so I avoided fighting that guy and uh, threw the other people out and then uh, at the end of the night he was leaving and I had a conversation with him he was a gentleman and he had the messed up ears and everything and he'd done some kind of sambo or something but he told me about Henzo's and uh, so I asked around and eventually found out where it was and, and I showed up I used to go there. I started going there because I wanted to learn what he what he was doing to people because it seemed a lot more humane than hitting people. And it, that's when I started, probably 2002, I think. Did you did you know about the Gracies around then or were you aware oh, yeah. of like the UFC and stuff as well? Because that was like what started in 1992 when it became commercial, didn't it? Yeah, um, I did know about it. I, knew, I certainly knew about the Gracies. I knew about the Gracies in the early 90s because of my karate instructor gave me a, an old VHS tape to watch because he was super impressed with them and um, no one had ever heard of them really well not where I lived anyway but I was like oh wow so I knew who they were and then after the UFC of course started realising the importance of what that was and what that element of uh, fighting could do for you so I was always interested it just uh, it took me a little while to come around but when I did I was super grateful as well it was that was a game changer you know yeah, I can imagine it's quite an eye-opener, isn't it, as well? Especially um, guys that I know have, have been strikers, you know, the majority of their life. And then as soon as you stick them on the ground, I, I know it's a cliche where, you know, it's you, you're, a, you're a fish out of water, really. Or like, you, you know, you've got the sharks circling you and you're the little fish there and you don't really know what's going on. But it, it is pretty much that, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I was not... Uh, I was never, I was always the one that kind of criticized people from doing it because I was into a bit of surfing and then I did some weights and a bit of fizz, you know, for what, 10, 15 years while I was in the Marines. And, and I saw people doing it, people like, you know, uh, Martin Stapleton. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, yeah. I was good, good, good mates with Stapes. Uh, we were in the same yeah. company, same troop. We were in the same room together as well. And he was oh, always cool. off training and stuff. And, you know, 
I, I mean, I didn't criticise anything, so I just get my head filled in. But, <laughs> but, but, but you know, it was always that. Yeah, I'm not not really that interested. And then when I actually started doing, I was like, do you know what? This is actually pretty cool because there's so many different ways of doing things. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I completely understand that uh, mindset. I, I don't I don't know if I came from it consciously, but I definitely had a subconscious bias towards punching and kicking. Um, and I think that's normal, especially for Britain, because it's a that's the nature of our martial art, right? Like we generally we're, we're not known for being grappling uh, people. I mean, we obviously have catch wrestling, and there's a, I don't mean there's no history, but it's not what we're known for. So like. Um, you know, I wasn't particularly uh, keen on learning it until I was a little older. And then I saw the effectiveness of it and I was like, oh, I should at least learn that. And then after I started doing it, it, it didn't take me more than a few sessions to be like, this is incredible. <laughs> this is just, this is like something that I I didn't understand. And now I'm, I was, that was it. Then I was like, oh, this is incredible. So again, it was just I really feel fortunate that I had the right people around me and um, you know, people were very welcoming, and I think for me personally, it's the most important martial art for me. And um, it just it's allowed it allows you to look after yourself without hurting other people particularly badly. And if you need to do that, you can. But it, I think it's more of a choice, you know, as opposed to a striking art where you don't, really don't have any control over the damage you're doing. It's very difficult to control what kind of impact you have on people when you're hitting them or throwing them around. It's, it's tough. I mean, I think there's an absolute need for it, but um, jujitsu isn't like that. It's like, what do you want to do? And it's more of a choice. It's like, if you, if, if the other person, especially if the other person doesn't know anything, um, you've got a really good chance of coming out on top. You know? When you went back to Henzo's and started doing that, did you do much wrestling as well? Because, you know, the, the, I, I train with some guys that are MMA, MMA guys here. They train at a place in Exeter called the Lion's Den. And I find yeah. that very sort of like uh, wrestling pin-based, whereas yeah. their fundamentals are, are, are very, very good. Um, and they're good at holding you in one position to utilize that. I mean, obviously, you know, when we're grappling, not punching the crap out of each other on the floor. But, you know, you can see kind of the purpose of where they are, you know. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think everything has its use, particularly when, if, you, if you're with people who are not necessarily as educated, it, it's just so, to me, it's very obvious, like, that skill sets are significantly, uh, or obviously more relevant when the other person just doesn't know what you're doing, or, or has less information than you, and you're just, you're able to just do things that other people are just, completely unaware of that they don't know they're in danger or or they're they're unaware of the vulnerabilities of of this situation so if you're like a if you're a kickboxer and you've never done a day of wrestling in your life once you start wrestling you're just going to get your ass kicked and like understandably and the same for a person who's maybe a wrestler who fights someone who's wrestled and can kickbox like you know it's like the, these things start to show up and it's not like it's not like you have to really prove it. It's been proven for the last 25, 30 years. Like you can see the things that are effective and the things that aren't so effective. And the beauty of it for me is it's still in such an early stage that we're still learning, you know, day by day. And you're seeing the development of jujitsu, particularly at the moment. And then uh, other forms of martial arts are coming into the 
um, into the into the mainstream. I think it, you know people like um, Leo Tomichida and uh, Wonder Boy Thompson are bringing karate into into the octagon with phenomenally effective um, results. So I like that the whole idea of the you know the application of uh, of the numbers. You know you put things together, and that's how you become. I think more effective because it's it's impossible to think of anybody in an MMA fight not knowing jiu-jitsu. I mean, it's ridiculous. So you have to know the fundamentals of these things, and the same with wrestling, or the same with judo, or boxing, or kickboxing, or Muay Thai, um, or karate. There there are elements of these things that have taken us a while to to understand, and we still don't understand it. I don't think particularly uh, well at the moment. We're we're definitely getting a lot better, but I think it's got a long way to go. You know. Have you watched much of the uh, Karate Combat stuff that came out? I think it was maybe a year, two years ago. You know where they've got the um, the elevated floors? So it's kind of like yeah. a big square, but they've elevated the sides up. And then if you knock someone down, you've got, was it 10 or 20 seconds to potentially do a bit of grappling and stuff with them as well? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I've seen that, yeah. It's, it's quite cool, but you kind of like that when someone gets taken to the ground, you're like, fucking jump on him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's interesting for me. Like, and I don't want to sound, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, uh, because I respect whatever anybody wants to do in sport. You know, if you you can do whatever you like, and um, it's just that for me personally, uh, maybe I'll change my mind. But for me, in the last twenty years since I've been doing jujitsu, um, this is the ultimate thing for me because it's like it incorporates everything. So if if you want to reduce those things and be like. You know, it's uh, like Sandar, something like that, which I have great respect for. Uh, it's it's not for me. It's like I'd rather just do MMA because the, these things seem to be like if you do boxing, you're good with your hands, but that's it. If you're a Thai boxer, you're good with your hands, your feet, your knees, your elbows, you can clinch. You, you, that's why they put these things together. And so, like, I much prefer to train in a in a collective version of things than a reduced version. That was the whole point of me doing other things. I was like all right, I did, I started with karate and I loved it. And it was great. And then I was like, oh, I feel like boxing is, is, has got a, got something to say about punching. Maybe it's uh, more versatile than I thought that my karate was. So I didn't stop doing karate, but I started doing boxing and it 100% helped my karate. And then um, I stopped doing as much boxing and started doing kickboxing because I sparred with a kickboxer once and he kicked my ass. And I was like, oh, will you teach me? And he was like, yeah. So then he started teaching me. And then I went to Thailand and I was like, oh, and it just became less and less rules and more and more skills. So that's always been my motivation is like, I want to be able to look after myself. And then um, I also want to develop the most fulfilling skill sets that build off each other. Yeah. So you moved, you started doing jujitsu, you started training uh, at Enzo's. How did the development of you becoming a coach there, how did that develop? Just just time served there and then they, they, they just asked you? Yeah, um, I came there within a year of being there. I'd won a, a US kickboxing title and um, some of the guys knew, found out. And um, one of the guys was managing Henzo and Henzo was fighting in Japan then in Pride. And... Uh, as Henzo got older, he got bigger. Like physically, he just he just got bigger. But at, at that time, when I met him, he wasn't that much bigger than me. And so um, he asked they asked me if I would spar with him because he had fights coming up. So I was like, yeah. So we used to spar together. And then um, 
he asked if, if I would do some pads with him and things. So it just developed from there. And then, um, you know, we became friends. And then his brother came from Brazil, Hyen. And then uh, also his other uh, brother and, and his family members would come from different parts. And they would all start training. And I got to know everybody. And everybody was super welcoming and um, always just really good to me. So that's how I, I eventually ended up teaching there full time. It wasn't something I knew I was going to do, but I'm just very grateful for it, you know. It was yeah. awesome. It sounds like a, a classic story where, you know, you, you, you're you travelling around a bit and you've just ended up in the right place at the right time and 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 you've met the right people. Um, it's, it's one of those stories of chance, really, isn't it? Or is it chance? I don't know. Is it fate? It depends whether you believe in that sort of thing, doesn't it, really? Yeah, I suppose you, you know, personally um, I can't speak for everyone but like I've always been a I'm very optimistic as a person um, and I, I believe in personally my own experience just believe in being yourself and like I'm not I was nobody else I was nobody different in America than I was in Australia or in England like I was the same person um, but the opportunities that were afforded me outside of my environment in Liverpool were different, um, but I wasn't different. You know, I, I didn't change to be anybody else. Uh, and I'm, I'm very confident that if you spoke to my family and my friends in Liverpool, they'll tell you the same thing. And one of the reasons I can say that is because I still am in very close with my friends and family in Liverpool, and I haven't lived there for over 20 years. But I make sure to keep myself... I haven't been back for a little while because I've had some... Um, situations here where I couldn't travel too much at times with work and stuff but I'm, I'm, as soon as the COVID thing is settled I'm going to come back and see my family but for the most part I've been back to England once or twice, three times a year every year and in doing that I feel like it helps you keep you grounded and stuff but the same person I was at home in England I am here in the States and the, the reaction to that for me personally was a little different and I don't put that down to culture, although that's definitely got something to do with it. I think it's just, it's economics, it's obvious. Like I'm in a country with 350, 60, whatever it is, million people. And I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in New York City where it's like, you know, pretty much the best of everything is here. There's the best of everything in other places in the world as well. But 100%, if you want to be really good at something, you could definitely probably find someone to show you how to do it in New York City. And uh, a lot of people come here to succeed. Um, I didn't come here, come here to, to particularly succeed. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just, I just knew I wanted to come here. And uh, it, it developed from that sense of curiosity to, you know, New York took hold of me. And that attitude of optimism and um, enthusiasm really, it, it met me and pulled me along with it. And I was, it, it was perfect for me personally. I was like, oh, okay. A lot of people are like, you know, not just how can I make money, but how can we make money? How can we succeed? What can we do together? And that collaboration was a was a nice thing for me. I, I wasn't necessarily as a, accustomed to that because it's just for me personally. I can't talk. I'm not talking bad about England, but it wasn't there for me. That was not my experience. Um, now, having said that, some of my friends have done very well back home. You know, for themselves, and that's awesome. For me, when I was young, I didn't feel that way. I was like, 
I wanted to go somewhere else to see what else there was. And definitely New York has definitely given me that in in abundance. I think in being in a, in a community where martial arts, jiu-jitsu and all those sort of things, and especially the academy where you're working as well, everything is all about collective, you know, a cohesive, basically like being in the Marines again, but but not being in the military where everybody's working together, everybody's working towards a common goal, whether it's training a fighter, whether it's getting better at jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, boxing, whatever it is that you're doing. And hopefully people are not in it for themselves if they're succeeding. So if they are succeeding and they know somebody and they think they're going to be good at something, then they're going to pull them along with it as well. Where I think where you're coming from, where you can, you can be quite selfish where you're trying to succeed yourself and where you're trying to individually earn a living or, or um, you know, put yourself on a pedestal and, and get yourself out of the box. Sometimes you forget about people and uh, and I like and I use the uh, euphemism. Um, it's a bubble. You have your bubble where your family's in it. Maybe a couple of friends that are close friends. Anything outside that, you, you know, you don't you don't really collaborate with. Whereas you know, going back to what you're talking about there with with being in the community where you are, everybody's in it together, aren't they? And and, and that's a really cool thing especially like in New York City, like you say, where there's so many people living on top of each other. You know, if you don't pull together, then it's going to be quite difficult to succeed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, I think the the one thing for me as well, my observation, and a, a friend of mine said this, a very good friend of mine, it, um, made a really good point, and I couldn't agree more with this point. I, I think it's important. When you come here, say to New York, or if you move to Australia or wherever it is you go, you're on your own for the most part. Like you're not with, I came here on my own. You're not with your family. You haven't got history here. And so there's, there's positives and, and negatives to that. And one of the positives I think is that everything you do is about you. It's like, you don't have to, you're not being pulled in different directions with the same responsibilities potentially that you would be if you were back in your original home. So like if you, you know, your auntie's sick or your brother or your best friend is this and that, and you know, Oh, something's happening. There's a lot of drama and things going on in life where you're just not there. <laughs> you're not available for that. So someone else is doing that. And in the meantime, you're where you are in life in the world at that moment, completely focused on whatever it is you want to do. And I think there's something to be said for that. And I think that, a lot of people do that on purpose. They go somewhere because they don't want to have anything like that around them. They want to be um, focused on whatever it is they're doing. And somewhere like New York tends to attract people like that. But then you, you know, obviously that's not the, I don't think that's the healthiest way to live. So as you progress and have um, that kind of direct line towards whatever it is you're trying to achieve, you're going to meet people. And those people will become the family that you might not have around you. Those people will become the, the people that are required for you to maintain your sanity and to keep you um, in check sometimes to keep you in, in a good place. Cause New York's mad. You can do, you can do anything here, including fall apart and, you know, go the wrong way or not really um, be very happy with yourself. So I've seen that. I've experienced it to a small extent, but um, again, I, I think you made a good mention in the martial arts community is different generally. 
and it, for me, it's been, I say it's inclusive and it's, it's treated me, you know, really well. And I've, I've, I've met the, some of the best people I've ever met through martial arts. I think my uh, my jiu-jitsu instructor would kill me if I didn't mention, we talked about um, on, a, on a second podcast we did where um, he uh, he came out to Henzo's a few, well, a few years ago now, maybe five, ten years ago, um, when he was a brown belt. Uh, do, do you remember a guy called Kenny Baker? Oh, I know Kenny, yeah. I know him a lot, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, well. he was out there when uh, Gunnar Nelson, they were, they were both uh, brown belts together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was. Uh, I mentioned that I was coming on to talk to you, and he was like that. He just put a bit, bit of a smile on his face, and I was like, "All right, okay." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a good lad. Very good. He was a very hard worker and um, very diligent at Henzo's. Uh, I was like Kenny, good dude. And, and like you say, you know, he's one of those guys, and I think one of the few that, when you're talking about if you want to find somewhere to go and train and improve, and it's one of the better places to go. If you go there and you put the commitment in and you move out there somewhere like that, I'm not saying necessarily go out to Henzo's, but, you know, a, a good high-profile academy or school where you know you're going to get with the top players and stuff, that's where you're going to improve the most. Um, but saying that, though, I mean, you look at um, next generation um, in the Wirral and, uh, and Liverpool. Now, I'm not saying it's like not a top premium um academy but when i when i was a i think i was a white but well basically my missus her family from uh, new brighton yeah so when i started doing jiu-jitsu and we used to go up there i was trying to look for places to go and they had uh they've got uh paul rimmer's got an academy up in birkenhead so uh yeah. you know i used to I used to go over there and I had absolutely no idea you know he had fighters in the UFC and cage warriors and, you know, top, top level guys. And then when I started seeing them going, I was like, flipping heck, like this, this stuff is all over the place, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and my point being is that you don't necessarily have to have those high level places, but as long as you've got the training partners that are worth, you know, wanting to put the work in and you can, you can create that level yourself, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm uh, friends with Paul. Um, I've got a great deal of respect for Paul. We were just in Abu Dhabi together, actually. Yeah, that was well, where I saw the photo. I saw you two together and I was like, that. I know that bloke. And then I was like, that. no yeah. way, Paul. Yeah, yeah, he's a top lad. And it makes me very happy to see the development that's happened since I left because it was just non-existent. There were, you, you couldn't do that for a living because it just didn't exist. But now it does, you know, you can be a, literally a full-time teacher. And even if you're not, you know, you can, you can go there and train six, seven days a week um, at a facility that's got high level guys. And I, I mean, a lot of that, I'm not, um, I'm not taking anything away from Paul or any of his boys or any of the other people in Liverpool, um, Darren Till's crew. And um, there's another lad there, Jason Day, I think his name is. Um, but there's a there's a bunch of guys out there doing really well. But it's also attributable to information. Like we're we're truly living in the information age, and never has more information been available to human beings before. And you can see it affecting everything. So people are a lot more educated, or they can be, and people are, can can get more uh, information and, and do what they want with it than before. Because it's different if you don't have access to it. It doesn't matter what you 
abilities are if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not around people who can help you. But now it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, this might be blasphemy for some people, but I don't care. I think it's absolutely 100% true. You could be a phenomenally good person at whatever you want to do, simply watching YouTube. Like if you study film hard enough and then you go out there and practice what you're trying to do and diligently try and understand it, then you could be really good. Because there's a difference between being taught something and then analyzing it and teaching it to yourself. I think everybody, for the most part, usually needs some teachers, but it shouldn't be left down to that. You should take responsibility for your own progression and be like, okay, what can I do to help myself? Don't just sit there and be told what to do. Like, go away and think for yourself and be critical. And um, in doing that, I think you make yourself better at everything you do. I think that's one of the thing, one of the key things as well. With uh, and and you're lucky in the way where you know you teach, but you also train as well. I'm in a position yeah. where where I do a similar thing. Um, I go and train jujitsu. I teach jujitsu as well to the lads within my unit. Um, have done since I was you know a blue belt, um, and. F- through doing that but also the knowledge of the fact through my background through teaching taking recruits through training in the marines being a physical training instructor in the marines as well is that those key points where if whether it's teaching a rifle lesson teaching people how to survive um in the wilderness or you know teaching how to break contact in a firefight or whether it's teaching a mountain escape it, it all comes down to the same sort of thing it's how you put that information across and how the people that you're teaching absorb it so when you're the teacher and you're teaching you're also you're also learning as well as doing it and i think you learn a lot more through teaching which i've definitely found i found that i teach the way that my instructors teach me and then in that way when they're broken down that well especially if you've got good teachers as well then you can apply what they're teaching you and you teach other people. And I think that's really important too. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you want to get good at something, you've got to teach it because then it'll, te- it'll force you to analyze things much more deeply. Um, one of my most significant, important teachers is John Danaher. And he'd said this to me maybe 15 years ago. We were, we'd finished a private lesson and it was just me and him in the academy. And afterwards I went over and I asked him a question about what we were doing. And then, he answered me and then he said um because i was a coach then as well i was teaching tie boxing and he said um you know jamie as a coach you must understand the importance of what you're doing he goes you as a as a great teacher or as a good teacher or whatever you want to call yourself if you want to be if you want to maximize your potential you're never teaching the student the thing that they're that, that they're that they're learning with you you're never teaching them that he goes what you're doing is if you really want to be good at what you're doing he goes, you teach that person how they learn because that's a lesson they'll take throughout their whole life. It's like, don't teach them the armbar escape. Yeah, teach them the armbar escape. But like you were saying, show them how to teach and like that way they're really going to pay attention. And then when they really think about what you're doing, they're starting to understand themselves better. And then they realize how they learn. And if you can apply how you learn to everything you do, isn't that the point? You know, like you're supposed to become a better person. And I feel like, don't teach people, don't just look at it in the shallow end, like, oh, this is what we're doing. No, I'm teaching you how you learn, you know, and if you figure that out, the more, the closer you get to understanding how you yourself learn things, 
surely that's going to make you better at everything you do rather than just the thing that you're doing. The, did John was John working there before you uh, before you turned up and started training at Henzo's, or did he did he join like around about the same time, like coaching wise? Oh, John was already there. He just got his black belt, so I think okay. he got his black belt for six months or something. So he'd been there probably about seven years or something before me. Yeah, I think uh, that that guy is probably underlying one of the most what's the word one of the most influential people on the planet at the moment with jiu-jitsu but by like you know the, the the top level guys for somebody that doesn't compete or doesn't want to compete you know the way that he puts things across in his breakdowns and stuff uh you know people are just absorbing it at the moment aren't they yeah he's i've known him well you know almost 20 years and like um he had a a guy who come up with him called sean williams who's just equally just brilliant um and again, I was lucky. I, I was there when they were there. And, um, you know, I've had John as a teacher for a long time and Henzo as a teacher and many other people as well have been absolutely, you know, brilliant. Uh, Gene Dunn is another guy. Um, I don't want to leave a, people a, out. Brian a, Glick. It's a classic name, that not it? Gene Dawn. Yeah. Gene Dawn, Brian Glick, um, obviously Gary Tony now, um, you know, uh, Gordon Ryan, those guys have, who are coming up, but they're just really good teachers. And, you know, for me, that that kind of sentiment, because uh, John Danaher was a, you know, he used to teach philosophy at Columbia University. He was doing his PhD. So he's I've still teaching philosophy. Yeah, right. He, <laughs> he's still teaching. Exactly. He's still teaching philosophy. He's just doing it with jujitsu, you know. He's a brilliant mind. There's no question about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to the point that we were just talking about there, you know, all those guys, guys like Gary Tonin and Gordon Ryan, and they're good through teaching and through teaching and learning from John and doing it themselves. They've become influential people themselves too. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got, Na- you've got Naaman Gracie at the moment that you're training. Uh, are there any other guys that you're looking to um, to put through fights at the moment? Um, yeah, I've got a couple of guys. Um there's a lad called uh, um, Ryan Rizko and a guy called uh, Asan Abdullah. They both pro guys for me, and they we're trying to get them in a card, maybe in where are we at the end of October? So we're looking okay. to get those guys fights. So nice. um, and then some amateur guys too. But then maybe maybe Naaman. You want to go at the end of the year? What? You want to fight at the end of the year? Yeah, maybe Naaman again at the end of the year if we can. Oh, nice. Personally, what what have you got going on? You got any got any cool stuff going on? Um, you know, in between like the fights, or uh, are, you, are you just going to continue doing what you're doing, training, coaching, and uh, and, and getting guys to the uh, getting guys to the cage? And yeah, that's it, really. That, to be honest, I'm uh, I'm boring. <laughs> I don't do anything else. I just I just do that. I love it. You know what I mean? So, um, and with the situation, you know, with the COVID, there's not much going on anyway. Um, the city's very quiet. It's starting to slowly come back, but um, at the moment the, the academy isn't open. So within the next few weeks, things will probably start to uh, pick up again. But uh, at the moment, I just have those plans to get those lads to compete, and then as the school opens, you know, I'll be of whatever use I can to open up the school and then get back to teaching classes and things. How's the uh, COVID situation affected you? Because uh, you know, New York was one of the most hit places, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it was tough. It's been difficult, to be honest. You know, the school's been shut. 
for six, nearly seven months. So, uh, you know, restricting, restricting my ability to work, really. But I have been fortunate, like I say, where the UFC has been fighting, had, had somebody fighting, so I was able to get one of my fighters to fight in Abu Dhabi and then with Naaman competing, that was good. And then, you know, occasionally you can do a little bit of work, a bit of, bit of, bit of teaching uh, privately. But it's been, it's been very tough, to be honest. It's been difficult. But that's life, right? You've got to uh, rise to the challenge. So things Improvise are starting to move again. So. Overcome. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, cool. Mate, thanks very much for talking to me. And uh, give Neymar my best. I'm sure he doesn't need it. But, um, yeah, he's going to smash him. Yeah, hopefully we'll get to talk again uh, in the future, mate. Yeah, I'd love that. That'd be great. I appreciate you uh, asking me to come on and uh, talk because it's something I have a lot of passion about. And I, I really appreciate the relationship between, uh, you know, the bootnecks and stuff. So that's awesome. Yeah, mate. I, and, uh, you know, I'll say a big thank you from uh, from the lads from my behalf anyway for uh, for sorting them out last year anyway when they were on the Virginia gauntlet. Um, you know, that, that was really appreciated. And some of those experiences that I took away from that, you know, were going to last for a lifetime, I think. Yeah, I enjoyed that myself, mate. It was great to see so many uh, so many good lads and, uh, you know, people dedicated to jiu-jitsu as well. So it was really cool. Yeah, cool. And hopefully next time you're back over, if you, uh, if you tap me up, might tie it in with coming up to see my in-laws and uh, we're going to have a beer or something. Oh, I'd love that, mate. That'd be great. That'd be really cool, for sure. Yeah, cool. Jamie, thanks for your time and uh, thanks for coming on the Grumpy Surfer podcast. My pleasure, mate. Cheers, buddy. After the podcast was recorded, Naaman Gracie defeated John Finch by submission, which is a credit to Jamie and the Henzo Gracie Academy coaches. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider and also follow the Grumpy Surfer on Instagram. Thanks for listening.